Today on Ag News Daily. A couple tricks that can still be played and, and make it illegal and defendable rulemaking. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the retailers are, are waiting for a signal from EPA and they have not. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by my co-host, Madison Honkamp. Madison, I'm not feeling so good today, so we might have to rely on you to carry us through the news section. Oh, my. I think we'll do okay. (laughs) We will. Folks, I apologize for my cold. This time of year, it's like the weather can't decide what it wants to do. My allergies slash sinuses can't decide what they want to do. Yeah, I know what you mean. Mine are starting to act up. I did take my allergy medicine this morning, and I haven't all winter, so it was kind of a different feeling, I guess. It is, but it again, it means we're uh, we're beginning to warm up. That's true. Yes, and other things. Another thing that's beginning to warm up is potential trade with China. We had some breaking news come out today that spurred excitement in the commodity markets finally and that's an unconfirmed report that china may purchase more than three million metric tons of u.s corn specifically from the pnw or the pacific northwest region again this is unconfirmed but quite a few analysts close to the issue said these sales are unconfirmed as of wednesday afternoon but I don't know what they're hearing that we're not hearing, but this is significant. I mean, especially in the midst of the U.S.-Chinese trade war, but specifically for corn because they have really not purchased corn since about seven years ago in 2011-12. That year they bought a little more than 5 million metric tons for the entire year. So again, 3 million metric tons would be over half of what they bought just in that one year alone. And we really haven't seen them purchase much corn, if any, from the United States since that eleven twelve time period. Yeah, and we can really see hope this helps our corn market, especially with the and the trade deal too. Um, I know I saw a lot of their kind of soybean um, products are kind of and prices are kind of falling because of the African yes. swine swine fever. So hopefully we can get a confirmation on this and see where it takes us. Absolutely. And actually, speaking of African swine fever, Madison, I had another piece of news here. We saw another new outbreak of African swine fever reported in the, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but the (laughs) Xi'an province, which is in the southwest part of China. Apparently, a truck carrying hogs was stopped on the highway and confirmed to have African swine fever uh, nine pigs in the truck were dead from African swine fever, and it was transporting about 150 pigs from an outside location to the uh, to the Xi'an or Xi, however you say it, province. This is the 112th outbreak reported across 28 provinces. We've seen now China has issued bans on importing pigs and boars and other porcine products from Vietnam in an attempt to curb that spread since we did see reports come out that Vietnam is now saying they've got some uh, cases reported. But hog prices in China, interesting tidbit here, hit their highest in 14 months just this week alone because of continued disease. And that makes China's pork supply continue to drop. 
Yeah, I did see another article about that actually in Successful Farming today. Um, a reporter was ac- was finally able to kind of get more information about the condition with African swine fever um, from China because we haven't really gotten a whole lot of information from them yeah. just because they are so closed off. Um, but, you know, they're kind of they're still working very, very hard to kind of find a vaccine, find something to treat it. But so many of citizens in China have those kind of pe- backyard um, pig productions that it's so hard to control because they don't have the biosecurity like the larger operations. Right. So what did the article say? Did it have a synopsis? Was it somebody that had been to China and had seen this? Yes, they had, yeah, they were meeting with kind of officials in China. They didn't really give any numbers, um, but they were saying how they're trying to, um, well, any numbers that we haven't already um, been reported. Yeah. But they're kind of finding it more, working with it more as though it was normal. So they're trying to still find a vaccine, still find a way to treat it, but those kind of smaller operations are being bought by the larger operations. And because some of those smaller operations weren't actually reporting their Mm. outbreaks, a lot of the African swine fever was found in their meat products, but it cannot be transmitted to humans. Right. And I think that's a huge thing to know because it is just a swine disease. So, but it can still be transmitted to pigs from humans. So that is kind of how it's been spreading. Interesting. That is a good piece. Um, I think a lot of consumers, especially in China, I'm sure probably get nervous about eating contaminated pork, but that's interesting about that humans can kind of carry the disease or help to spread it, and biosecurity makes that even more important. And I think that's also interesting, the point there about some of those smaller hog operations, maybe the more rural ones have been bought up or are continuing to be bought up by those larger commercial industries. So that's definitely something that I'm sure those large commercial uh, hog producers and hog processors are having to watch even more closely right now. Yes, definitely. And they did talk about how, you know, Chinese agriculture, um, their technology is really increasing, especially in these past couple of years. And after this out, these this many outbreaks, they're really upping their biosecurity because um, it wasn't a huge thing for them in the past. But because it, this disease is so susceptible to pigs and it's so easily transmitted, um, like even in one of my professors was talking about if you were to eat pork that was infected with the African swine fever, you yourself would not get sick. It does like again, it doesn't affect us at all. But if you were then to go to a pig oper- or a swine operation and, uh, you know, because if you work there or you're visiting and you don't do the proper biosecurity, um, those pigs would then be infected. Huh. So it, it's weird. It's very weird. Um, I think that's kind of why it's so hard to find a vaccination right. for it. Um, but again, they're still trying to work for it and we're tightening our borders of the U.S. to yes. avoid it. So Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a good piece of information for today. Very interesting. Um, kind of on the trade scene, that's some other news I really had for today. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer 
was set to testify in front of the Senate Finance Committee on Tuesday, amongst other groups later this week. He told the Senate Finance Committee late Tuesday afternoon that he understood the U.S. ag sector is losing out on sales to Japan because of the CPTPP agreement, and Japan now has lower tariffs on imports from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the European Union. Um, But he said it's going to take a while to get a free trade agreement with Japan especially. He also made mentions this week that nothing's really changed on the EU trade front. And uh, he said continuing to have talks with Cecilia Malmström, the EU trade commissioner, but it doesn't sound like anything's changing there. However, I did see one piece of news for today is working on getting kind of a not really a free trade agreement in place, but a, a trade deal in place between the EU and the United States in relationship to beef. Washington and Brussels have reached an agreement in principle, is what it's called here, to guarantee U.S. farmers a set portion of the EU's, EU's annual um, quota for the hormone-free beef imports. They are, well, I'm not sure exactly what that quota is going to be for the United States, but Since 2009, the EU set up annual import quotas after losing a WTO uh, dispute over its ban on hormone-free beef. And so it looks like we're really working to, you know, have that relationship and have that discussion. It's kind of seen as an olive branch to the Trump administration since we are kind of on fragile eggshells, I'd say, with the EU right now. And to go along with that, EU's been definitely making some news this week. British Parliament again on Tuesday rejected a plan by their Prime Minister for a soft Brexit or uh, for Great Britain to softly exit the EU. So still don't know what's going to happen there. Still some uncertainty on that front as well. Yeah, and you know, the that the EU really kind of hit us hard in 2009 with the hormone free beef imports Mm because you know a lot of our beef is treated with hormones um but hopefully we can kind of see that change uh and kind of see some trade happening in that front right um and even to kind of go along with beef i found this article today that was very interesting to me that new york public schools are kind of introducing a meatless monday um This was to kind of go along with the Green New Deal. And um, the New York mayor, Bill de de Blasio, introduced this program actually on Monday, I believe. Um, And they did kind of try it out last spring in about 15 schools. But it's just a cut back on meat to improve, quote, New Yorkers' health and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so they're trying to expand it, but I thought that was interesting. Um, they are still allowing children to bring meat to school with like their own lunch if they would prefer, but then they will offer a vegetarian and plant-based diet uh, for their school lunch. Does it say what age these kids are? Like, are they elementary school or high school? It says that kids age 12 to 14 actually show signs of early cholesterol disease, so they're going to kind of focus in that area. I guess that's old enough then for kids to kind of know what decisions they're making. I was going to say, if it's elementary Mm -hmm. students and they're like, oh, we're not going to feed you meat today, like, 
I don't think that's fair because they don't really know any differently. If you're working with like middle school or high school students, they at least maybe have some some concept that they're not eating meat. But I think it's, I think it personally, it's wrong to teach a kid that when they're so little, you know, that it's wrong to eat mm-hmm. meat and whatnot because they really haven't had the experience. They don't know any better. But I guess that's just agriculture's problem too to not educate those young kids and and raise them to know that agriculture and that meat aren't unhealthy for you. They aren't really contributing as much to the greenhouse gas emissions and pollution as what a lot of maybe more hippie organizations would like them to believe. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what caught my eyes when they said to eliminate those greenhouse gas emissions when really, you know, we did see in those studies that we talked about a couple of days ago, on the podcast Mm -hmm. that, you know, agriculture isn't actually as much of the factor of those admissions into the atmosphere. So we'll kind of see how that goes. They are getting a lot of pushback from the North American Meat Institute. Oh, yeah. um, And I believe the National uh, Cattlemen's Beef Association. Oh, I bet. Yes. So, but I thought it was very interesting and kind of hit home for me, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you touched there on some government reports that we chatted about the other day. We saw a new report come out from the Government Accountability Office to talking about foot and mouth outbreak or foot and mouth disease outbreak. The, a new report says there is only enough of the vaccine available to control a small outbreak of FMD and the current vaccine supplies would be sufficient to protect about 14% of Texas's cattle or about 4% of Iowa's swine. So really this report came out and said we're not ready for an FMD outbreak. There was some money allocated in the farm bill I think to put together a vaccine bank, but still a challenge here. And the report also says that the USDA has yet to correct a series of flaws that it identified in its procedures for responding to an FMD outbreak. So we'd see a number of challenges in areas, including detection for the outbreak, tracking animals during an outbreak, and inconsistent record keeping and also animal identification. So USDA officials said that they are in the process of making needed corrections in response to this report, but I don't know. If I foot and mouth outbreak or FMD outbreak here in the United States would be I think more detrimental to U.S. agriculture than what African swine fever is right now to the pork industry in in China. Oh, definitely, because I know the African swine fever is mostly just for pigs, but, you know, foot and mouth disease is a lot of different animals, and it would really, really affect agriculture as a whole. Um, And, I mean, maybe not even just livestock, but also crops, because the livestock user of those crops and um, what we use um, like especially corn and soybeans for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Madison, that's all the news that I had for today. Do you have anything else to share with us? I have just one thing. This came out today, actually. Um, So I know we have kind, this was a while ago, but we talked about the ag gag law and how it was actually ruled unconstitutional because it did uh, violate free speech. And this kind of law 
basically made it so that undercover investigators for um, organizations like PETA and different animal rights activists could not lie to a farmer, basically, if they were trying to kind of get a job on a farm to see how animals are treated and how they how they ran their operation. Um, so it is actually now kind of turning to a trespass charge. Huh. Um, so it, obviously they cannot really say they can't post things on social media because that does violate free speech. Um, but it's going to be more for biosecurity and health of livestock. So it, it's going to sit, it's basically a trespassing law. So if you're going to go on property and hurt or destroy um, something of that farmer's, then they could then file charges or kind of criminalize that one person. Interesting. So it's a way basically to kind of get around the ag gag law and still maybe make farmers feel protected from, from those groups. Yes, exactly. Huh. Interesting. Well, I know Gary Rasmussen is, has asked me about the ag gag log before. So I know there's other producers following that. I mean, it's scary to think that somebody could get employment on your, on your farm and then misconstrue what you're doing on your operation to the general public. So I'm glad that they're working to put something in place here to give us a little bit of protection in agriculture. Yes, definitely. And I know I actually saw something, I think on Twitter yesterday, maybe, um, that in Canada, a whole, and I, this would kind of apply if it were to happen here, a group of animal rights activists actually went into a hog confinement without doing proper biosecurity mm. and kind of not listening to the producer. And I know two piglets were actually killed in that because they were in a farrowing house and it just wasn't a good deal. So yeah. I think if that were to happen here, this would definitely apply. Absolutely. Well, good piece of news there. Thanks for keeping us updated on that. And folks, if you want to keep updated on the markets, you can chat with anybody over at the Zayner Group. Give them a call today at 312-277-0050. I promise you they really do know their stuff. They could probably tell you a little better than I could why the commodity markets had some excitement on the screen today. The corn markets, I think, reacted just barely to that rumor about China maybe increasing corn purchases and the soybeans as well, following along with that rumor. Not too bad on the day the March corn contract finished up three quarters of a cent at three fifty seven and a quarter, while the May up three quarters as well to finish at three sixty six and a half. In the soybean pits, the March contract up four and a quarter at eight eighty nine even. While the November up three and a half to finish at nine thirty-five and three quarters. The wheat pits were not spared today with the March contract cutting six cents to close at four forty and a quarter. The May cutting five and three quarters cent at four forty-seven and a quarter. Looking over into the livestock pits, the live cattle April contract up two cents on the day to close at one twenty-six sixty-seven and a half. The June up sixty-five cents to close at one nineteen thirty-two and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract up 25 cents to close at 141.55. The April cut 27.5 cents to close at 144.12.5. Seeing some spread in the lean hog markets as well with the April contract cutting 17.5 cents at 63.47.5, while the May putting on 52.5 cents at 72.27.5. 
And rounding out our markets with the Dairy Class 3 Milk Futures, the March contract unchanged at 1492, while the April cut 2 cents at 1496. Now, we're going to be getting a quick update here from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, with Robert White, who is the VP of Industry Relations with the Renewable Fuels Association. Folks, I want to put a quick disclaimer out. This interview came out just before the announcement that the EPA had for E15 year-round, seeing some movement there. So let's get a let's get really what Robert's thought was before E15. He was speaking at an emergent, emerging issues forum in Omaha just recently and gives an update on ethanol and the state of the ethanol industry. Robert White is the Vice President of Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association in Washington. I recently sat down with Robert at the Emerging Issues Forum in Omaha. I asked him for an update on EPA allowing E15 fuel sales for non-flex fuel vehicles on a year-round basis. Well, we have a proposed rulemaking for the E15 volatility waiver now at OMB. Uh, we still have not seen it, so we don't know. You know, It's always the devils in the details. But hopefully uh, OMB will turn that around and they can propose the rulemaking officially. And then, you know, there's an open comment period, and we expect there to be a lot of comments, both uh, pro and con. And then they have to dive through all of those, and hopefully they're still on target to meet that June 1st deadline, although it's looking less and less likely each day. Can they fast-track something like this? Well, there there is a couple opportunities. The biggest one right now is anything that has less than a hundred million dollar impact can speed up. Uh, we're also looking at a uh, kind of a bifurcation opportunity where they split the REN reform from the E15 part, which again would speed up the process. So there's a couple a couple tricks that can still be played and and make it a legal and defendable rulemaking. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the retailers are, are waiting for a signal from EPA, and they have not received it yet. What about biodiesel? Where, where's, where are you at on biodiesel, and, and what's going on regulatory-wise there? Well, the biodiesel focus, and, and, you know, we have to rely on our colleagues to, to keep us up to date, really. But, the you know, the biodiesel credit is always there first and foremost. Uh, issue. I, I've seen some and actually had a good conversation with REG folks last week. Um, no doubt that they are um, looking a little more favorable conditions than we are right now on the ethanol side. Um, but again, it's some, some in, in their case, it's a longer secure credit uh, program versus, you know, year on, year off, um, get it in arrears type thing. So I, I think they're getting t- and hoping for a more stable outlook, um, something we're looking on at it in the tax extenders as well. What other issues on the ethanol side are you folks looking at right now? Well, there's two big ones. The small refinery exemptions continue. Uh, right now there are a number sitting on Administrator Wheeler's desk uh, waiting for a yay or nay. And last year they, you know, under Administrator Pruitt, he rubber-stamped all of them and didn't really care the merits of the hardship uh, analysis and even what Department of Energy in some cases uh, told him not to do, he did anyway. Um, and we really believe that the intent of the law passed by Congress was to have that opportunity for small refineries that could demonstrate hardship to be allowed out of their blending requirements. That said, the intent was that those gallons would be shared back into the, the pool, if you will. And so those that 
could not demonstrate financial hardship actually picked up those gallons and there was no loss in the end. Well, that's been far, far cry from implementation where we saw, you know, some and more than two and a half billion gallons uh, relieved off of those uh, rolls and some of them two years in arrears. And that's just hard to hard to fathom and hard to um, hard to really understand. And so we hope under Administrator Wheeler, there's a more transparent system, but no one ever attended ExxonMobil to qualify for a financial hardship waiver under the small refinery clause. And then the second one is the uh, renewable fuel standard uh, reset. The RFS has a, uh, a, I guess, a clause in it that if so many years in a row, the um, some of those gallon requirements have to be waived, then there is a reset triggered. So we're looking at that reset coming out in the next a proposed reset rule making coming out in the next month, maybe two, and in there there's some opportunities for us as well, and it kind of can help codify some of what will uh, come down the pike after 2022 when EPA really has control over the RFS. Are you still seeing some good support from the administration? Well, uh, verbally, yes. You know, now it's time for some action. You know, it's been uh, almost five months, I guess, since October when the president stood in Council Bluffs and, and promised D15, and we don't even have a propo- proposed rulemaking yet. Um, and we're 80-some-odd days from June 1 when all that turns off if that rulemaking's not done. Um, obviously, China is big on our uh, list right now. The 70% tariff on ethanol has not worked out to our benefit, and right now that could be more than 200 million gallon market. And in our financial situation right now, that would be huge. I know the E15 situation, if they finally get that settled, would be a big boost to the industry, and including agriculture with the, with the corn growers, for example. Um, right now, what's what's the state of the ethanol industry as you see it? Well, um, uh, definitely in, in a stress time. I mean, we have not had anything favorable come out of EPA in a, one would argue, since 1990, but definitely not in recent years. Um, these small refinery exemptions gutted the renewable identification number, the REN credit value, which in turn ethanol had to soak up that. And so, you know, you saw ethanol prices deflated last year um, immediately following the small refinery exemptions. And that really uh, took the margins down to nothing. And uh, corn is in a similar situation. We're all in this together. But I think the, just a, one positive out of this administration could really send a signal to the marketplace. And thank God for exports, because right now uh, we just released yesterday that there was 1.71 billion gallons exported last year. And that's in the face of the complete stop in China. That's in the face of a, an additional tariff in Brazil and in, in some other care, countries. So a lot of opportunity on the export market. You know, some of these countries are embracing ethanol a lot faster than we did, and we make this stuff. It's pretty amazing, the export market right now, with, with all the uh, headlines going on right now about the trade talks, especially with China, is, as you mentioned. But uh, for ethanol to be such a big player in that is pretty amazing. Well, you're looking at countries that are taking climate serious. Whether you believe it or not, they're taking it serious. And they're looking at the low-carbon, high-octane opportunities that you have with ethanol. And really, that's driving it. And, you know, some, some of the early adopters uh, globally were looking at fuel supply extension. So more ethanol means their gasoline lasts longer. It's really evolved into a, more of an environmental concern and also octane. You know, the, most, of the country, most of the countries that we're shipping to have a 95 RON minimum, which is about our premium. That's their base gasoline. So it's already expensive. It's uh, already harder to produce for the refineries, and they need all that extra octane that ethanol provides. And, and, oh, by the way, we're the lowest cost provider as well. So the battle continues in Washington, D.C. for expanded ethanol sales. 
here in the country. That's Robert White. He's the Vice President of Industry Relations with the Renewable Fuels Association in Washington. I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. All right. Well, again, that was Robert White there with field reporter Bruce Gorder. Madison, I have reached out to Scott Irwin, who I know know we've had on the podcast a couple of times, to try and figure out what some of these new proposed changes to the RINs could do for the ethanol market and folks outside of the ethanol market. But even just today, I saw a report that said they are proposing to potentially change the way that speculators can even trade RINs and maybe not allow the markets to trade RINs whatsoever. So that really could change the scene I think, for the ethanol and RINs market. Yes, definitely. That could change a lot, especially with this rule coming out and if they do end up changing those. Yes, absolutely. But folks, if you're interested in in staying up to date on the latest changes in agriculture, when we cover the gamut from anything related to trade and all the way over to E15, the weather, commodity markets, and more, Give us a shout on Ag News Daily social medias, Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. If you've got anything that you think we should be covering, otherwise, Madison, with that, should we let the folks go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 